0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Happy Flosser podcast. My name is Billy Lunt, I am your host, and I am here to talk to you about all things dental hygiene to support you on your journey through the dental hygiene program. Welcome, so glad to have you. Osteology is the study of structures and the functions of the skeleton and bone. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the cranial bones and the facial bones that make up the head. And this is especially important for the dental hygienist to be familiar with the bones that make up the head to help us with the identification of landmarks during our extraoral intraoral exam, as well as when we administer local anesthesia or perform radiographic interpretation as part of our assessment in the clinical setting. Just like you learned in your other courses, there can be multiple dental terms associated with the very same structure. So as a dental hygiene student who's first learning the landmarks, this can be quite challenging. So let's take a look at all of it together. Are you looking for study sheets? I've created study sheets that cover the content of this episode. If you're interested or that's something that's going to help you on your learning journey, you can click the link listed right in the description of these show notes. Happy studying. Just a few things that I wanna highlight before we get started at looking at the cranial bones and the facial bones. So at birth, the bones are held together by cartilage, and this allows for growth of the brain and growth in other areas of the head. The growth of the skull occurs at the suture's edges of those cranial and facial bones, and true or actual fusion does occur between the bones. The upper face growth takes place at the sutures between the maxillary bones and the adjacent bones located close to the maxillary bones. The lower face takes place, that growth takes place at the bone surfaces of the mandible at the head of the condyle. Now all the bones of the skull are immovable except for the mandible. There are 22 bones of the head that we will study in dental hygiene. Now some of these bones are bilaterally located and paired bones and some are not. It's important when you're learning about these bones to be able to identify which are single and which bones are paired. Now the cranial bones are the ones that house the brain. And this is a brief review from Anatomy & Physiology. There are four bones that are single, and two that are paired. The cranial bones are named as follows. The frontal, the parietal, the occipital, the temporal, the sphenoid, and the ethmoid bones. Let's take a closer look at each of these cranial bones. The frontal bone is a single bone that makes up the forehead and the superior portion of the orbits. It articulates with the parietal bones to form the coronal suture. From the anterior view, there are several landmarks located on the frontal bone that you should be able to locate and be familiar with. The supraorbital notch is located just below the area of the eyebrows, and it contains the supraorbital artery and nerve. Now, just medial to the supraorbital notch is the frontal sinus located on each side of the midline. The orbital roof makes up the superior portion of the orbits. Just superior to the orbital roof is a supraorbital ridge or margin just at or above the eyebrow. On the lateral sides of the frontal bone is the zygomatic process. The lacrimal fossa is located on the inferior surface of each orbital plate of the frontal bone. Just underneath that zygomatic process and it contains the lacrimal gland. This is the inside portion of the supraorbital ridge. Now remember, all of these landmarks are seen from the anterior view. The glabella is a bone prominence that represents the most anterior portion of the forehead when you're viewing from the side profile of a patient, and it's located right at the midline. Taking a look inside the orbit, still from the anterior view, you can locate the superior and inferior orbital fissure. These are created by the frontal and sphenoid bones and are located in the back or superior aspect of the orbit. Now the parietal bone makes up a large part of the vaulted area of the skull. It makes up part of the sides and the top of the head. From the superior view, you can see the sutures that articulate between the different bones that make up the skull. The coronal suture articulates between the frontal bone and the two parietal bones. The sagittal suture articulates the two parietal bones and the lambdoidal suture articulates between the parietal bones and the occipital bone. From the lateral view, you can see the squamosal suture, which articulates between the parietal bone and the temporal bone. The occipital bone is a single bone that makes up the base of the skull. The occipital condyle is a bilateral concave bone located at the base of the cranium. And this condyle forms the base for the head to articulate with the cervical spine. Condyle articulates with that first cervical vertebrae. The foramen magnum is formed completely by the occipital bone and provides passage for the spinal cord. The hypoglossal canals are located on each side of that foramen magnum and allow for the passage of the hypoglossal nerve. The jugular foramen is located within the notch between the occipital and temporal bones and carries the internal jugular veins. Let's take a look at the temporal bones. Now these are paired cranial bones that form the lateral walls of the skull. The temporal bones articulate with the mandible on its articular fossa. Some other landmarks on the temporal bone are the styloid process, the mastoid process, and part of the zygomatic arch. The glenoid fossa on the temporal bone is where the condyle of the mandible sits and the mastoid process is where the attachment is located for the sternocleidomastoid muscle. There are three sections that make up the temporal bone, the squamous, the tympanic, and the petrous. Starting with the squamous portion, which is the flat, thin part of the temporal bone, this area provides the cranial portion of the TMJ. The tympanic portion contains the external acoustic meatus, which is a short ear canal that leads to the tympanic cavity. The petrous portion of the temporal bone is the posterior portion just behind the tympanic portion, located between the sphenoid bone and the occipital bone. The petrous portion is a pyramid-shaped wedge located on the floor of the cranial cavity. The styloid process, which comes off of the temporal bone, is where attachments of muscles and ligaments that are associated with the tongue and pharynx attach. The stylomastoid foramen located between the styloid process and the mastoid process carries the facial nerve. The jugular foramen, which is located within the jugular notch and is part of the temporal and occipital bone, houses the internal acoustic meatus and the vestibulocochlear nerve. The sphenoid bone is a butterfly-shaped single bone that is divided into four parts. The body, the greater wing, the lesser wing, and the pterygoid process. Within the body of the sphenoid bone, there is a pituitary fossa, which can be seen as a depression that houses the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland attaches in the cella tersica. Now let's look at the greater wing of the sphenoid. This is known as the bottom shelf, and it spans the width of the skull. The superior orbital fissure is located just under that shelf. Now the greater wing makes up the back wall and the floor of the orbits. The greater wing of the sphenoid bone houses the foramen rotundum, which is the location of cranial nerve 5-2. It also houses the foramen ovale, which is the location of cranial nerve 5-3, the mandibular branch. The greater wing houses the carotid canals which bring blood supply to the brain. The foramen spinosum houses the mandibular artery. Let's just say there's a lot going on on the greater wing of the sphenoid bone. The lesser wing of the sphenoid bone is composed of two thin triangular plates. The lesser wing makes up the posterior roof of the orbits and contains the optic foramen. Both the greater and lesser wings of the sphenoid bone are split by the superior orbital fissure. There are four pterygoid plates of the sphenoid. The pterygoid plates of the sphenoid bone, they are thin wings of bone that are found directly inferior and lateral to the palate. These are noted as the lateral and medial pterygoid plates and they're located right at the junction of the two plates. There's a tiny hook called the hamulus. Now, the hamulus can sometimes be seen on a third molar radiograph. The muscles of mastication attach to these pterygoid plates, if you remember from our muscles of mastication episode. Now, let's take a look at the ethmoid bone. The ethmoid bone is a single bone found at the midline of the skull. The ethmoid bone forms the base of the cranium and part of the orbits. The ethmoid bone contains the ethmoid sinus cavities and is enclosed within the skull, joining with the maxillary, the palatine, the vomer, and the sphenoid bones. A couple of landmarks you need to know on the ethmoid bone. The crystal galley is a perpendicular plate located right in the center of the frontal portion of the skull and is the most superior aspect of that ethmoid bone. This vertical plate continues into the middle of the nasal cavity. The cribriform plate is the horizontal component, which is perforated with holes and allows blood and nerve supplies to pass from the brain. Taking a closer look at the anterior view of the nasal cavity, the nasal concha or nasal turbinates can be seen. The superior and middle nasal concha arise from the ethmoid bone. Now important to know that the inferior concha is located just inferior to the superior and middle, but it's not part of the ethmoid bone. The nasal meatus is an air passageway from the sinus and that's located just inferior to each nasal concha. Before we move on to the facial bones, let's just quickly review. The frontal bone is a single bone. The parietal bones is a paired bone, one on each side. The occipital bone is a single bone in the posterior portion of the skull. The temporal bones are paired bones, one on each side. The sphenoid bone is a single bone, and the ethmoid bone is a single bone. Now we'll move on to the facial bones. Looking at the facial bones starting with the vomer, which is a single bone. The vomer articulates with the perpendicular or vertical plates of the ethmoid bone to create the nasal septum. It's a triangular bone forming part of that nasal septum and there's no muscle attachment to the vomer. It articulates with the sphenoid, the ethmoid, the maxilla, and the palatine bones. In order for you to see it taking an interior view, it extends from the base of the skull vertically to the palate and it's shaped like a little plow. Next, let's look at the nasal bones, which are a set of paired bones. The frontal nasal suture articulates between the frontal and nasal bones. The pyroform aperture, or nasal cavity, is a large triangular opening, and the bridge of the nose articulates between the paired bones. These bones provide attachment for the nasal cartilage. Next let's take a look at the inferior nasal concha, which is a set of paired bones, and this is viewed from the anterior and lateral cross-section. These inferior nasal concha are projections from the maxilla that form two separate bones. They form part of the lateral walls of the nasal cavity, and there are no muscle attachments to the inferior nasal concha. Next, let's talk about the lacrimal bones, which is a set of paired bones. They are the smallest facial bones of the skull. It forms the anterior medial wall of the orbit of the eye. The nasolacrimal canal is formed by the junction of the maxilla and lacrimal bones. And the nasolacrimal duct rests in this canal. Fluid or tears from the lacrimal gland are drained through this duct into the inferior nasal meatus. Next, let's look at the zygomatic bones, which are a set of paired facial bones. These are the corners of the cheekbones, and so these are two zygoma bones. The three zygomatic processes articulate with the frontal process, which forms the anterior lateral orbital wall, the maxillary process, which forms the infraorbital rim, and the temporal process which articulates with the zygomatic bone forming the zygomatic arch. The infratemporal fossa is the space that lies behind the zygomatic arch and the coronoid process of the mandible sets within that space. Let's take a look at the palatine bones which is a paired set of bones and the only way to view this is within the oral cavity You need to remove the mandible from the skull in order to see all the parts of the palatine bones. There are horizontal and vertical plates. First, looking at the horizontal plates, they articulate with each other to form the posterior portion of the hard palate. They are also part of the median palatine suture. The horizontal plates contain the greater palatine foramen And this is a landmark for the administration of local anesthesia. It is found at the apex of the maxillary second molar distal root area. The lesser palatine foramen is just behind or posterior to the greater palatine foramen. Next, let's look at the vertical plates. They form part of the lateral walls of the nasal cavity and a small part of the orbital apex. They articulate with several bones. Now the palate is formed by the maxilla and the two palatine bones. Next let's look at the maxillary bones, which is a paired set of bones that come together at the midline. The maxilla houses the maxillary arch of teeth and makes up the middle third of the face. The maxilla contains a body and four processes, starting with the frontal process. This articulates with the frontal bone to form the medial orbital rim. The lacrimal bone meets on the anterior surface, and this articulates with the nasal bone. Looking at the alveolar process, the bone is less dense, and it contains the sockets for the maxillary teeth. The maxillary tuberosity, which the location of that, is in the posterior superior alveolar foramina. The canine fossa, which is inferior to the infraorbital foramen, distal to the canine root, and is an elongated depression. The canine eminence, which is a very prominent ridge over the maxillary canine. These are all landmarks on the alveolar process. Taking a look at the zygomatic process, this articulates with the zygomatic bone, and this completes the infraorbital rim. Now the fourth piece, the palatine process, the two bones articulate on the anterior portion to create the median palatine suture. The incisive foramen is located directly behind the central incisors. It carries the nerve supply for the lingual side of the anterior maxillary teeth, and the incisive papilla is the landmark that covers that foramen. Looking at the body of the maxilla, The maxillary sinus is the structure within the bones. There is a pair of large hollow spaces for the maxillary sinuses, and you can see this on radiographs. The important piece of clinical information about the maxillary sinus, it is in close proximity to the roots of the posterior maxillary teeth. Taking a look at the nasal spine, there are small projections which can be sometimes seen on radiographs. The vulmar and the two maxillary bones articulate here. In the infraorbital foramen, this carries the infraorbital nerve. It is tender when palpated clinically. Taking a look at the mandible, which is a single bone, it is the largest, strongest, and only movable facial bone. It articulates with the temporal bones on both sides of the face. And the mandible is much more dense than the maxilla. And this is really important information to know before you begin understanding how to use local anesthesia in the clinical setting. Let's take a look at the parts of the mandible. The body, which is the horizontal portion, runs from the anterior to the lateral aspect. The angle of the mandible is where the body and the ramus of the mandible join, and the ramus projects vertically and backward from the body of the mandible. Some of the landmarks that you want to be familiar with on the mandible include the body, which houses the mental protuberance, the symphysis, which is located on the body of the mandible at the midline, the alveolar process of the mandible contains the sockets of the teeth, the mental foramen, which is, and this is located bilaterally on the external aspect. This is below and between the roots of the first and second premolars. And you can sometimes find this on a radiograph. The retromolar triangle and this is distal to the third mandibular molar on the retromolar pad. The genial tubercles which are internal or medial and part of the body of the mandible that from the midline on the internal surface provides points for muscle attachments if you remember from that episode. The mylohyoid line which is a horizontal ridge seen on the interior body of the mandible, the posterior teeth roots may extend below this line. And it's also seen on radiographs and known as the internal oblique line. The sublingual fossa is a depression anterior and above to the myelohyoid line and this accommodates the sublingual gland. The submandibular fossa is a depression found below the mylohyoid line, and this accommodates the submandibular salivary gland. The mandibular canal carries blood and nerve supply, and you can see this on radiographs. This is internal or medial on the angle of the mandible. The mandibular foramen is located bilateral on the ramus, and it forms the opening of the mandibular canal. This is the passage for the inferior alveolar nerve and blood vessels. The lingula is a bony protuberance or overhang anterior to that mandibular foramen. The external oblique line is located on the external surface, and it forms a crest where the ramus joins the body of the mandible, and you can see this on radiographs. The internal oblique line, which is an extension of the mylohyoid line, is a companion to that external oblique line, and it's on the interior surface of the mandible and can also be seen on radiographs. The condyle is the rounded component of the ramus, which articulates with the temporal bone, and this forms part of the TMJ. This is that rounded end of the mandible. Now, the coronoid process, which is also located at the end of the ramus, is the superior margin, which forms the anterior border of the ramus, and this provides points of muscle attachment. When the jaw is closed, this process lies behind the zygomatic process within the infratemporal fossa, and it has a pointed end on it located just above the retromolar pad. The mandibular notch on the ramus is a concavity that's between the condyle and the coronoid process. The coronoid notch located on the angle of the mandible and the ramus is just behind the retromolar pad. And this is considered the anterior border of the coronoid process where the ramus and the body join together. This is a key anatomy point for the inferior alveolar nerve block. So you'll be feeling and palpating to find that coronoid notch when you're performing an inferior alveolar nerve block when you take local anesthesia. So just as a review of the facial bones, the vomer is a single bone. The nasal bones are paired. The inferior nasal concha is a paired bone. The lacrimal bones are paired bones. The zygomatic bones are paired bones, the palatine bones are paired bones, the maxillary bones are paired bones, and the mandible is a single facial bone. It is important for you to know the landmarks of the skull and the facial bones for a number of reasons. The more familiar you are with these bones, will help you be more comfortable when you're learning about local anesthesia injections because there's a lot of these landmarks that you'll have to be really familiar with. And if you understand all the locations of the bones as well as some of the landmarks on the bones to help you find the location of the nerves, it will really go a long way at helping you feel more comfortable as you develop an understanding of local anesthesia and you begin to perform injections. Thanks for listening today. Join me next time where we will have a discussion about the mannequin exam versus the live patient exam in order to obtain licensure as a registered dental hygienist. You won't want to miss it. Thanks. I would invite you to ask any questions at all that you need answered. Sometimes questions come up when you're listening to this podcast. If you have a question, most likely someone else has the very same question. I'd be happy to answer it and would probably share it in a future podcast.